0: This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the 2020 Real Estate Forum, brought to you virtually by Informa Markets. Join the industry on the 2nd and 3rd December by registering at realestateforums.com after you listen to this episode to join Aaron and myself at the forum this year. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawlik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Pawadik, and with me, as always, is Aaron Cameron. This episode today is sponsored by Wise Meter Solutions. Forward thinking owners and managers are embracing submetering, and more of those companies are choosing Wise Meter Solutions as their partner. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise has become synonymous with creating the efficient buildings of tomorrow your residents want today. Our guest today I'm very excited about. It is Gary Berman, president and CEO of Tricon Residential. This is actually the third Tricon representative we've had on. You know, early days we had John English. He's probably our sixth or seventh guest on the show and was uh, at that point discussing a tower that was just getting built. And then more recently, but Andrew Joyner on to discuss that tower actually completing fifty-two stories right here. In Toronto. This should be a great episode. This is a you know an intergenerational family, but the size of a pension fund. So really interesting perspective of the market. And hey, welcome to the show, Gary.
1: Adam, great to talk to you and you as well, Aaron. And I gotta tell you guys, I love that you had both John English and Andrew joiner on before me. I love that. That's terrific. <laughs>
2: well they set it <laughs> up for you to spike at home, Gary. That's the <laughs> that's the reality. Terrific. That's teamwork, right?
0: <laughs> we'll put links to both those episodes in the shows if you want to hear about the evolution of Tricon over time. It actually might be an interesting perspective. But Gary, you know, we start off uh, these episodes in the same way. We get into the history of the person involved, but we're going to spend more time on yours today given its uniqueness you know, and interest level. We want to do a deep dive into the history of growing Tricon from a very small business into a multi-billion dollar operation currently. So as somebody that grew up in real estate, you decide where you want to start the story, how far back you're going to want to go, when the light bulb went on for you about real estate, and we'll go forward from
2: there. No, no, no. Whoa, whoa. let's start in diapers. Gary, you were in diapers <laughs> and you knew you wanted to be in real estate. Now tell us how that happened. <laughs>
1: No, well, I, I didn't know that I wanted to be in real estate. I didn't know that. I will say that almost everybody's in real estate, I find, and I've done a lot of interviews like you, but I've interviewed our own team. And I always ask people, you know, why do you want to come work for a real estate company? And it usually find that there's someone in the family that was in real estate or they were exposed to it somewhere. And I think real estate tends to be somewhere in the blood, right? So I I obviously had it in my blood because my father was in real estate, you know, right, really right from the get-go. And so I'd hear about, you know, real estate at the kitchen table. I got the kitchen table degree. I'd I'd hear about it when he was on those old car phones and driving me to work and hear about it on the beach. And, you know, my father was a workaholic. So, I mean, I'd, I'd hear about real estate and I learned about it through osmosis but you know I wouldn't say from a young young age that I wanted to be in real estate I wanted to make a lot of money I actually wanted to go and work on Wall Street that was uh, that was my goal and when I was at McGill that's the only thing I was set on was finding a way to Wall Street and you know I, I'd seen the movies and I kind of had this romanced vision of, of what that would be like and then when you get there you realize it's not exactly that but I had no intention at an early age ever to work for my father and interestingly after I worked on Wall Street briefly, and I had some great experiences there. I, I worked at Goldman Sachs and Blackstone both briefly and really you know, had some terrific mentors. But I realized during that time that actually the best mentor of all was my father. And I had a, a wonderful opportunity to come back and help him grow the business. And that ultimately became this, this vision I, I had in my head. He actually wasn't that keen. He didn't love the idea. So it took a little bit of uh, conversation. I, I don't want to say Bleeding, but it was something he really had to think very thoughtfully about and involve some of his partners at the time Jeff Mais, Saul Schulman and others to determine whether it was a good idea for me to come back and, and work for Tricon and I think part of it was just as a father he wanted to protect me. He'd just been through the SNL crisis real estate had fallen on some very very tough times in the early 90s. remember at that point it was stay alive to 95. it was a tough, tough time. And I think he felt concerned that you know, if his son joined him and, and things didn't work out, or we hit another major recession, that could have a major implication on our relationship as father and son. So he he was, you know, somewhat I think skeptical about the idea. And and actually he said, you know what, in order for you to come and work for me, you gotta go and get some real experience. And so then I went and worked for a national property developer called Canderell. I worked for them for the better part of two years. And only then after I did that, and it kind of really sunk my teeth into development, which is really what we were doing. We were lending, providing equity loans, essentially to developers back then. Only then did I really come back and work for Tricon. So it was not something that was kind of immediate. It was something that I had to kind of work towards. And it was probably... I would say the best training I ever got. And I would say when I kind of look back on it, it's, you know, my father and I and, you know, and Jeff Matus as well, who's my father's co-founder have had a wonderful relationship. It's been a great journey, but it's not, I wouldn't want any of your listeners to think this was, you know, this is a grand plan. It it wasn't like that, you know, things just take their own course and they evolve and we've had a lot of fun along the way, but it wasn't what we planned.
0: Well, it's funny, your father's perspective on that. You're totally correct that Having somebody, in family in real estate does lead to you know, the next generation being in real estate. But usually, the previous generation is more than excited to, to have the next generation come in. I, of course, in the context of the real estate world burning around you, maybe you don't want the next generation to step into that. But that's pretty unusual. I mean, I'm sure most of the people you speak with who are, grew up in a real estate environment, it was you know, groomed from the get-go that this was going to be the path. Well, you know, look. I mean,
1: we're not in uh, commercial real estate, where in many cases, you know, you're really just flipping coupons, right? You're just managing existing assets, and and you know, maybe things have changed a little bit today, but typically commercial real estate's been incredibly steady business. What we did was much more transactional, and and in a way similar to what you're doing at First National, and, and you know, it's a lot of transactions in order to grow your business, and we were providing capital at that time for builders and developers across North America, and it was really just focused on for sale housing. And that business for sale housing uh, is cyclical. It's certainly more cyclical, has been more cyclical in the past in commercial real estate. And so I think my father had a bit of a different view because we were in housing. We were in for sale housing. And, and interestingly, right when I joined the company, I mean, this is what it was worried about. Two of our biggest investors, Ontario Teachers and Royal Bank Equity Partners, both stopped investing in our business, right? So we had funds with them, but we were in the fundraising business. And so Ontario teachers bought Cadillac Fairview and decided to pivot into a different direction. Royal Bank at the time had their issues and decided not to do kind of venture capital type investing anymore. And so our two largest, our anchor investors, disappeared overnight. And we faced kind of an existential threat, I would say at that time, right when I joined. And that's what my father was concerned of. It's not like we had income producing office buildings or apartment buildings where you collected the rent every month so you know that was a very difficult period and then again you know in the Great Recession and remember the, at that point the vast majority of our business was focused in the US home prices in the u.s you know you go back from kind of 2007 to 2009 dropped 50 percent some cases 70 percent imagine being a investing in the stock market and stocks dropped 50 to 70 percent a your margin it's a pretty scary thing and so we faced a another existential threat at that point too, where we weren't sure we could raise more money. So I think that are some of the things that went into my, you know, my father's thought process about this is not necessarily a sure thing. And so that's one of the reasons, you know, that our business has evolved so much and we've had this kind of giant transformation as to what we do is because we wanted to make sure we never returned to the Great Recession, never found that we had our back against the wall again. And it was, you know, imperative that we created a business that was really going to be recession proof and you know, allow us to do well in good times and bad times.
0: You know, the concept of existential threat is very relevant given where we are right now, just to timestamp this episode. It is October 13th, 2020. We are in the throes of the pandemic with the second wave just coming up. So given where we are now with being six months into COVID, do you feel comfort given that you went through Major existential threats at the very start of your career that you got tested at the deep end of the pool right away? Yeah, I do. I think we're,
1: I mean, I think Tricon's incredibly well positioned uh, to ride out this pandemic. And I think we're going to, we're clearly going to emerge as a winner. But I think the key thing to remember is you can never be too complacent right? And we pride ourselves on being an innovative organization. We're always, we've been a leader in, in so many different ways in, in all the businesses we've been in and the way we've adopted technology to run our business. But you have to continuously innovate and you have to continuously look ahead because if you don't, you know, your business can be significantly harmed. And so we did a lot of that thinking and soul searching, I would say, after we got through the Great Recession. And we decided that, you know, only focusing on for sale housing, which is cyclical, would not be a great way to build a long term and a much larger business, right? And so that's why we decided ultimately to go into a single family rental, right? And so the largest, you've talked to John English and Andrew Joyner before, but the largest part of our business is focused on buying and managing single family homes for rent in the United States in the Sun Belt. And that business and we felt would do well because throughout the cycle, because people need a place to live, no matter what. Did we predict the pandemic? Obviously not. We never could have foreseen this, but I will say that we've been lucky, And, and in this case, it's better to be lucky than smart. But this pandemic has unleashed, you know, very powerful. I would say, de-urbanization trends that maybe in some cases were already there, but they're accelerating. And so now what we're seeing in the US, I mean, what's happening before, but now it's happening at a faster pace, is that people are leaving places like New York and Chicago and LA, denser cities and droves, and they're really heading south to less populous second-tier cities in the Sun Belt, where there's better weather and lower taxes and newer infrastructure, and they're more affordable, and that's where we own our homes, in the Sun Belt. And so we've seen a... We've had demand throughout, but we've seen a surge in demand, I would say, through the pandemic. And so we think, you know, that'll obviously continue, but we're very well positioned to get through what is obviously a, a very difficult and challenging time for everybody in different ways.
2: You know, Gary... Adam and I are, you know, have had the fortunes of interviewing lots of leaders of real estate companies, whether investment or brokerage or what have you. A theme that I kind of pick up on is often that in order to attract capital, because it's a capital intensive industry, that you kind of have to do what you say, say what you do, and you know, define yourself as this is why I deliver and I'm going to deliver on this every time. I think you guys have kind of been in a sort of a state of transformation that you're, you're providing equity for home development. And then you went into home building and, and now transitioning into more multifamily purpose built. How have those conversations gone over time with your investor partners for them to, you know, I guess, keep up or hold on to the transition? And as you've indicated, you're making yourself more recession proof and stronger at large. So I mean, maybe it wasn't a difficult conversation, but what's that like going in saying, okay, we're, we're pivoting again? Well, I think in
1: any business, it doesn't need to be real estate. If you want to be successful in the long term, you have to do what you say you're going to do. You have to show integrity. If there's no integrity in your business or the way you treat your investors, you're going to have no long term business. So I think that's a cardinal rule, no matter what business you're in, that often determines success or less, you know, not reaching, I think, the the optimal in your business. But in our case, we certainly had a major transformation, and at times, I think our investors have had to be patient with us. And it's one also that if you're doing that in the kind of limelight and in the, in the openness of the public market, it's also more difficult because sometimes those transformations are easier done in a private market situation. But when it's public, everything's open, and so it, it can be difficult. And so. I would say at times, you know, investors have maybe wondered, well, where, where are you going with this organization? Or you're taking this organization again in a different direction. But I think if you step back from it, we've never we've always been a residential company. The strategy's always been focused on Resi. We haven't gone into entertainment or to commercial real estate. It's always been focused on Resi. It's just we've transitioned from providing capital to builders and developers to ultimately becoming a builder and developer and focusing really on single family rentals, really becoming a, a large landlord. So we've stayed within Resi, but we've pivoted that strategy within residential. And that, you know, for investors can be daunting because they think they're investing in you for one thing and then you end up doing something else. But, you know, the key thing is you have to look ahead. Right. And I have our team has full conviction that we made the right moves. And if we actually just stayed still and just continue to do what we were doing in the past, I mean, it would be much, much more difficult journey that we've actually created a lot of value by sticking our neck out and trying to do something different and innovate. And you know, it's you don't take a giant leap. You do it incrementally, right? Like we didn't. So if you take single family rental for example, we didn't decide out of nowhere that we could do single family rental because we had no experience with it. So we essentially decided that we would go into single family rental just the way we backed development in the early days, which is we would back third party developers. And so in single family rental, for example. We ended up having seven different operators and 13 different markets. They were a motley crew of groups, you know, former home builders, land developers, technology hobbyists, Wall Street mortgage traders. But we ended up backing different groups. And only when the business went well and we learned the business, did we take it over and integrate it? So it was a gradual process. And as the business showed us that it could perform, we went deeper and deeper into it. So I would say. Everything we've done along the way, even though the transformation over 10 years, let's say from when we went public to 2010 today, has been colossal, like the transformation has been major, along the way, it's been incremental, right? It's been a series of small decisions along the way. And as you get more conviction in what you're doing, you keep on guiding that, you know, ship and pointing it to where you want to go. So it's been a process. It's not like you wake up one morning, you change everything you're doing
0: especially with a, with a company of your size the movements become tougher you know there's always the example of turning an ocean liner at sea it's got to be even more of a gradual process but maybe if we were to travel back in time you know when you when you first got involved with Tricon what was the pitch to investors then and then how has it changed over time as your program has changed
1: you know it actually hasn't changed that much i mean the key pitch was you know we were specialists and all we focused on was for sale housing and if you wanted to get exposure for sale housing you know, we knew the business better than anybody. And the second key theme was that we are a demographic-based investor and we would follow the growth. We would go where there's more population growth or job growth over time. And that's why we focused on Toronto and maybe back in the day, Alberta and and, and obviously the, the fast-growing Sunbelt market. So, in a sense, that demographic-based investment theme still stays with us today. And I would say a lot of the principles, you know, the guiding principles that David and Jeff put in place when, when they started the company 32 years ago are still in place today as well. So we've continued that. We just, again, what we pivoted is the type of investments. They're still resi, but instead of doing for sale, we now buy and we hold and we rent. And that's the big difference. And that's where I think we've got this opportunity to build a much bigger company because the issue with for sale housing is you run to standstill. By definition, if you're successful, you sell all your lots or your homes or your condos. I mean, you got to go out and buy land again, right? So that was the difficulty of the, of the old business. It was that even if we were successful and we were, we then had to keep on replicating it, keep on doing it again and again. Whereas in the business we're in today, which is we're essentially a major owner and operator of rental housing, single family and multifamily, we can continue to harness that existing portfolio and we can grow it. We don't have to sell it, right? And so that's really been the big difference. But again, the residential theme, the demographic-based approach to
0: investing hasn't changed at all. Well, before we move on from investment, we want to ask you something about growth in the US. But before we move on, there was a very high-profile investor that recently jumped on board. I guess it would be your early employer. Blackstone recently made a major investment in Tricon to the tune of $395 million. Can you speak a little bit about uh, how that unfolded?
1: Yeah, you know, again, it wasn't something we sought out. I would say it was, you know, serendipitous, is the way I would describe that journey as well, because we had been approached by different investment bankers over the last couple of years to do what, you know, we're called private placements. private placements into a public company and the reason we were getting approached is because i think bankers thought that our fundamentals were very good but our stock price didn't reflect those fundamentals and so we weren't going to go into the market and raise capital where we were trading so this is another way to raise capital to keep on growing and so we received different ideas and the latest overture we got from morgan stanley was Again, I would say, you know, interesting, but maybe not compelling enough for us to pull the trigger. So we said to them, why don't you go and run a process for us and and let's see where we get. And the idea behind the process was to raise strategic capital that would improve our liquidity profile so we could get through this pandemic and and make sure we came out as a winner and had capital to take advantage of opportunities and also hopefully find validation capital. And so we really tasked Morgan Stanley to run a process where they only went to U.S. investors because, again, 95 percent of our business is in the U.S. Yet we're a Canadian public company. And so we were looking for validation from a major U.S. investor to say, look, these guys are based in Canada, but they're actually very successful in the U.S. And so you know, Morgan Stanley ran a very thoughtful, very, very competitive process. At the end of the day, Blackstone emerged as a natural fit. And, you know, I will say they help create the single family rental industry and sponsoring invitation homes They're a major multifamily investor. They love what we're doing up here in Canada. They really were a terrific fit and they're great people and I think great partners. And they prove that over the years in building you know, an unbelievably successful business. And also, you know, I, I would say sometimes in doing these type of deals, they become relationship type deals. And, you know, even though I, I worked at Blackstone very briefly, I sat beside Frank Cohen and, and some of the other guys that now run Blackstone today. We were all very junior in our career, but we sat beside each other and formed, uh, you know, a good relationship back then. And that carried all the way through to today. So it's been um, it's been terrific. You know, you know, the stock market responded very favorably to the announcement. I think both in improving our liquidity profile and the stock jumped about 10 percent on the day we announced the deal. And it's been trending in a positive direction ever since. And I think the market understands and Blackstone certainly understands that Tricon can be a much bigger company. So we're seeing good momentum behind our story.
2: Gary is, is the story reminds me of a metaphor. I, I don't want to screw this up, but it's something like if you you know, if you get in bed with an elephant, you gotta be prepared for it to roll over. And is there ever a discussion behind the closed doors about, you know, is that partnership with someone like Blackstone or a group like Blackstones who are so large a concern? Or and you mentioned validation capital. So I mean, where do those two things intersect, I guess, to, to a certain degree? Or the concept that Blackstone is so large is, is not a risk to you or, or not, not something that you're concerned about? No, not at all. I mean, you want to partner with a group that you
1: think is going to be a great partner that has a track record of growing other companies. And they have They have a tremendous track record. And actually, uh, what's so interesting about this, this is the first time they've ever made a private placement into a public real estate company. So they've done it with other companies, but not with a real estate company. So that was a, a first for them. And And, and obviously, it's you know, it's something that we're incredibly proud of. But look, they have a track record as a company and individuals as being uh, great partners. And their whole MO is to try to create companies like ours and get them to the next level, to help grow them, provide them with the resources and capital they need. And, you know, we were looking to partner with a group that had the lowest cost of capital and probably no one's got lower cost of capital than Beery, right, which is the core fund for for Blackstone, which is per, also permanent capital. So great bit. Look, we manage money for, you know, 10 of the largest institutions in the world. They're all Goliaths unto themselves. On the public side, you know, we manage money for some of the biggest Canadian and U.S. institutions. So there's a lot of Elephants, a lot of Goliaths around us, but you know they're all investing in TriCon. They're all minority investors, and you know we're happy to have their support. No concerns at all,
0: Gary. You mentioned at the start that you know we had John English and Andrew Joiner on the podcast before to talk about your apartment business here in Toronto, and that being just a very small part of what you do. And so it'd be worth exploring your U.S. investments. That was, as you mentioned, I guess phase two of TriCon's reality when you decided to start building yourself. But can you go back? To your first major efforts in the U.S. to grow the book down there and bring it up to, to where it is now, I, I remember reading just recently the velocity which Tricon's buying homes down in the U.S. and it's pretty incredible. And some of the uh, you know the software you use to make those decisions, given that you know you can't go visit a hundred thousand home tours a year to pick out yeah. the homes you want.
1: Well, I, I won't go all the way back to time zero, but I, what I will say is that you know, like as I said earlier in the podcast, I mean, I was. We were pretty lucky to make it through the the Great Recession. And it was a difficult time, but I would say because we did relatively better than some of our peers who went on a business, we were able to raise significant money. So we raised about a billion dollars of equity, and we used that after the Great Recession to buy land, discounted bank notes, assets out of bankruptcy. But we were basically buying land in the Sunbelt for future development purposes. And we knew in many cases we were land banking it because the U.S. didn't need new housing let's say in 2010. So it was during that period of time, which we said, hold on a second, there's this great opportunity going in and buy houses below replacement cost, right? And we weren't sure, you know, whether it was a long-term business, we weren't sure whether we could manage it. That's why we ended up backing other operators. But again, incrementally over time, as we realized that we could manage it and we didn't make any major mistakes, there was this opportunity to keep on, you know, first the courthouse steps, and then over time to buy homes off of the MLS, you know, using algorithms, it was an evolution, right? It was not something that, you know, we woke up one morning and had a kind of grand master plan and executed on that. It was trial by fire. You know, every every month, every year, we kept on incrementally improving the business to a point where now technology runs every facet of what we do. But at the very beginning, everything was largely manual, right? I mean, I go back to the early days of buying houses on the, on the courthouse steps, we would back operators who would literally go with a backpack full of cash and probably a gun, and would show up on the courthouse steps and bid on homes in a hundred dollar increments. Right? It was. It was like wild, it was like the wild west. Uh, a little. So the bit.
2: record when Gary said "and a gun," he didn't even crack a smile. It was. That, I think that was legitimately <laughs> it, it, serious.
1: It, it is the. It is the South, right? But you know they were carrying a lot of money, and they you know were for protection, right? They obviously wanted to protect themselves, but. It was a crazy time. I mean, you just think about it. And we, you know, on occasion, were able to buy these homes at unbelievable prices because our competitors, who also had backpacks full of cash, might have run out of cash, right? So if the people beside you literally run out of cash, you can buy a home at a much better price. So it it was very primitive, I would say, in the way we, in the early days of how this industry got started. And if you fast forward today, it's been completely professionalized and institutionalized where we now buy homes off the multiple listing service. And we use, just to give you a little bit of insight into the technology, we have our own proprietary underwriting software that we call Triad. And it essentially allows us to screen you know, hundreds of thousands of homes that hit the multiple listing service. So every five or 10 minutes, we're screening the MLS, and we have a 90-point criteria, which would look at the zip code, would look at the school scores, the crime scores, the configuration of the home, a lot of different you know, things that would go into a decision you would make to buying a home, where ultimately we're solving for a yield, and we use that to determine whether we make an offer. And once a home checks all those boxes and drops all the way through the filter, We can underwrite a home and put in an offer in five minutes, right? So just to give you a sense, and so now we're at a point where we're buying about 800 homes per quarter, one at a time. And I would say that's just because we're capital-constrained. We've got this really terrific uh, joint venture with two major sovereign wealth funds. We have about a third of the capital, and they've each put in a third of the capital. And with that capital, we're buying 800 homes a quarter. But if we had more capital, we could go even faster. So it's been wild how the business has evolved. And now we use technology to help us acquire the consumer or the customer and manage uh, the back end and all the maintenance. So their industry has really come a long way. And what we're super excited about is being able to take that technology, which has really allowed us to run, you know, what I would call scattered site property management. I mean, when we first got into the business, like just the idea of managing 10 homes felt daunting. I mean, if you've ever tried to you know, buy one home and rent it, try doing that 10 times or a thousand times, or 10,000 times, right? And now we're at 22,000 homes. But you start to realize that a lot of the technologies that have propelled Amazon or Uber, Airbnb, that kind of confluence of cellular mobility, which is access anywhere, you know, broadband, speed, and then cloud computing, AI, machine learning, all of those technologies coming together are allowing us to run single family rental. And we want to now apply that ultimately to multifamily. Right. So that's why we have a lot of conviction in that we can put single family rental and multifamily rental together and become more and more efficient over time with our operation. Do you sell that technology, Gary? At this point, we don't have any desire to kind of, I would call white label it, but you never know, you know, maybe longer term we would. I mean, I think at this point it provides us with a competitive advantage. I do think, you know, I I can't say this definitively because I haven't been on the other side, but I do think we built a, we probably built a better mousetrap. And it's you know one of the reasons that our metrics are better than our larger peers, and so uh, I don't I don't know if we want to get rid of that competitive advantage right away, but you know maybe over time it's something we consider.
2: Okay. We're going to spend the next hour now talking about this technology, Gary. You've got Adam <laughs> and I both peaked because this is the more uh, one of our sort of favorite topics. I'm kidding. One more question, then we'll move on to the other things that you mentioned. That 90 point sort of algorithm criteria is that all AI? driven on as far as the tweaks to it? Because you must be changing that on a, you know, I don't know, day or weekly basis. Or is, is there somebody kind of looking at it going, okay, well, this neighborhood's changing, so let's change the algorithm or let's change those 90-point criterias as the case may be? Yeah, you do. You
1: have We have what's called a triad rating. So we've come up with our own score, which ranks each home. And you have to, over time, look at that and then potentially recalibrate it. Because you're right, zip codes or areas could change over time. Things are always changing, like rents and home prices. The cost of renovation is going to change, and that's going to impact your yield that you're solving for. So you do have to continuously recalibrate. The market might become more competitive, right? So you have to make some changes. But once it's finely tuned, and it is today, you know, every home that you're buying in a neighborhood looks very similar to the other homes right? It, it does, the AI gets very good. It becomes very predictable, right? And I can tell you in the early days when we were starting this, it was a little wonky. I mean, you, you'd look at the the buy sheet at the end of the day and you'd be, you know, why did we buy that home? That doesn't seem, that doesn't look right. And then
2: over time, it's become more and more finely tuned. We're going to move back into commercial real estate in Canada because this is the Canadian real estate podcast, Canadian commercial real estate podcast. I'll ask one more, and maybe this is a good segue into future and just kind of the growth trajectory of Tricon. Is that technology? Does it transcend borders? Like you were talking about the Sun Belt, but could you apply it basically anywhere? U.S., Canada, Luxembourg—like I don't know, you name it.
1: I mean, oh yeah, it's definitely it's definitely transcended the technology, and there's no reason why it just needs to apply to single family rental. You need it. We needed a single-family rental because it was just too inefficient of a business to manage, right? We had to create that technology in, in order to run it. But now that that technology exists, it can be applied across borders and it can be applied to multifamily. And the way I'd have you think about it is that it's really, I mean, the housing at the end of the day is, is, is very similar, right? Whether you're you know renting a home or you're renting an apartment, it's really from an operational perspective, it's really the same thing. And I can give you a lot of different examples, but in the way that we now acquire a, a resident that's been automated, and you can contrast that to the old days of multifamily just to, to see how how it could be applied you know, back to multifamily now. But the way we acquire customers in single-family rentals, if you're interested in one of our homes, let's say 123 Elm Street in Atlanta, you would activate our self-showing app. And to do that, you would provide us with your credit card so we have your information and your driver's license. And then maybe later today or tomorrow, you could drive by and go see the home. As you get close to the home, you'll take a selfie of yourself. And if that matches your driver's license, the door will automatically open. So it's keyless entry. You don't have to touch anything, which think about in a pandemic is really important. And then you walk through what looks like a hotel ready home, right? And as you leave and you close the door behind you, you'll get a text which says, if you like the home, here's how you apply, right? And so you can apply online. We can qualify you virtually. You can pay online. And then the whole moving process is all virtual, right? So there's nobody physically touching you from the time that you go and look at the home to you move in, right? And if you compare that to multifamily, you're going to go to the clubhouse, you're going to go to the model suite, you're going to meet with someone, they're going to walk you around the apartment building, you're going to meet someone then sign checks, right? It gives you a sense of how virtual the customer acquisition process has become in one business, single family rental, versus a very physical, old school business in multifamily. And so we think that that customer acquisition process and the idea of Self-showing or self-tours can be applied to multifamily as well. And we already started doing that in the U.S. and we're going to bring it north of the border. And we think actually that millennials in particular, that's what they want. I mean, they actually don't want to hold someone's hand and walk around the building. They want to do their research online. They want to go and see things at their own pace. And that's actually what the customer wants. So the technology is available and there's no reason why it can't be applied. And I think the other thing I would say before you shift gears on me again, I would just say maintenance too. Also, all the work streams, the standardization of scope, you know, in maintenance can all be coordinated with technology, right? So that now, you know, when a maintenance tech walks into an apartment or a home, all the specs are predetermined for them. They just have the key and a bunch of buttons on an iPad, and it tells them exactly what that's going to cost and it gets ordered. And all of that's communicated dynamically between the field or the property and the central office in real time. It's not a maintenance person on-site filling an Excel spreadsheet you don't know where that information ended up, right? So that's just to give you a sense of how the, the industry is moving and the opportunities are right to really make multifamily more efficient as well.
0: Well, it's how you scale. And, and also in years of slow rental growth, solve the problem of improving NOI, which will be particularly interesting this year as you know, many provinces are getting uh, rent freezes. And even if not, nobody's going to see big rent growth this year. And so if you want to grow your book value, focusing on your expenses is a great way to do it. And this sounds like this is how you do it at scale at an institutional level. Now, you are correct, though. We are going to shift gears on you here. Aaron and I very recently had the great pleasure of interviewing Jonathan Gitlin of RioCan. Unfortunately, it was not for the podcast, it was for the Canadian Real Estate Forums for one of their events. And he went on a very eloquent dissertation on why the market was missing the mark on his stock value. And of course, Rio Can's predominant book is retail and had taken in a substantial hit. Yours, on the other hand, took the hit that everybody took back in March and has recovered virtually all of its value over that time frame, which is very impressive. Is that a testament to the resiliency of residential during a downturn? to the preparation you did for potential disruptions of the market? Or how are you almost back to break even on a pre-pandemic valuation? Well, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think the
1: fundamentals for our business are extremely compelling, especially our single family rental business. And if you look at our single family rental metrics, I mean, I can't share Q3 numbers with you, but if you looked at the trajectory of Q2 to Q3, every single metric's positive. And, you know, part of that is the demand. It is the de-urbanization and de-densification trends that have been unleashed during this pandemic and are probably longer term. And it is also, you know, the business that we built that allowed us to take advantage of those trends. So it's a number of factors that are driving that. And, and I think the market is, is just responding to that. And uh, I think, look, we've been on the other side of the table. I mean, as I said before, we, we went through the Great Recession and, you know, I would say for sale housing was in the eye of a Category 5 storm back then where we had excess credit and, and really, you know, I would say in many cases, fraudulent lending. In this recession, in this pandemic, obviously, commercial real estate is much more challenged, right? And so I think the way investors are looking at this is they're saying, you know, where can I find certainty? And, you know, this pandemic has obviously unleashed forces and trends that are benefiting industrial logistics and Resi, particularly Resi that can take advantage of deurbanization trends. So we're very fortunate right now that the trend is moving our way. And I think that obviously, if you just look at the fundamentals, you know, we're probably going to be one of the very few companies, real estate companies this year that are able to grow NOI or grow FFO per share. And I think obviously that gives a lot of confidence to the market.
2: Okay, Gary, we're gonna I wanna move forwards and ask about sort of the future trajectory of Tricon. But before we go there, I mean something that's I think on everybody's mind and particularly leaders of I mean leaders in general all around the world. We're focused on just diversity and the, the sort of the socioeconomical challenges that are challenging parts of the world. And I'm just curious, you know, what it means to you and what kind of actions you and Tricon are taking.
1: Well, you know, I, look, it, it's been tough to watch some of these events, you know, the murder of George Floyd and, and others. I mean, it's been a very, very difficult summer and especially during the middle of is a pandemic. So it's, it's been challenging for all of us and, and certainly for our team and for employees. And so I think as leaders, you know, we have to take a stand. We have to show what's important to us. I think the most successful organizations going forward are going to be the ones that are diverse and inclusive. I really do, because I think when you've got a diverse organization, You're better able to see blind spots. You're better able to serve and help the communities that you serve. I mean, our communities, our resident base is extremely diverse, right? And so we need to make sure that our employee base reflects that. I think that's imperative. And I think also when you have a diverse organization, it allows everybody to be their own best self, their best authentic self. Even the white male, it gives you permission to be who you are and to be comfortable. And that's how you get You know, you do your best work and you're most productive. So I think diversity inclusivity is extremely important. I'm very proud, you know, our organization is extremely diverse throughout the the vast majority of employees are actually in the US. And you know, by almost every metric, we're diverse. The majority of our employees are females, an example. But what I would say, and where we have a lot of work to do, and I think our entire industry does, is that in the very senior ranks and on the board, there's not enough diversity, right? There's just not. And we've got to work harder at this. And so we, for example, signed the Black North Pledge. My friend Wes Hall started that. We signed the CEO Pledge, which commits us to diversity thresholds in terms of making sure that we have Black or African-American members in our senior team are on our board. We've got five years to do that. And I think it's really important that we do everything possible to hit those goals and to show our organization that we really do care. Otherwise, we're not doing our part. And I do believe, and I've heard so many stories recently, and many white people don't recognize this because they haven't had those experiences, but there is a systemic anti-black racism, you know, not just, and, and I think people, when they think about that, they think about that south of the border because of the legacy of slavery. They don't necessarily associate that with Canada because we're such a multicultural country and in many ways inclusive country, but we have real problems here. I think, with systemic anti-Black racism and within the Indigenous population, too. There's a lot of work to be done here in Canada. And so we're doing our part. We're helping to educate and inform our team. We do things down in the U.S. like celebrate Juneteenth. We provided resources to our entire team to help them learn about very uncomfortable topics, things that are difficult to discuss, like the legacy of slavery. And what's happened, you know, the, the way we've treated our indigenous people in Canada so they can understand it. Because I think the first step in being able to combat racism is to acknowledge some of the issues that are out there. And only when you acknowledge them can you move on and, and try to find solutions. So so we're, we're committed to doing whatever we can. I think it's absolutely the right thing. It's a very sensitive topic for me. My father and I and Jeff Manus were all born in South Africa. You know, we came here. Because, you know, my parents and Jeff did not believe in the apartheid regime. My parents did not want me going into the army and fighting for that. They came to Canada because they wanted us to grow in a more multicultural, diverse, inclusive society. And it is for the most part, but it's not it's not 100 percent where we need it to be. There's more work to be done. And so we're, you know, I think I'm thrilled that I've been given the ability, the platform to do good with right, that we can really help. And so there's still a lot, there's a lot to be done. But one thing I can tell you for sure that we're doing in Toronto, Dream and Kilmer, is we're going to be developing an area by the distillery called Block 10 in partnership with the Ashwanabe tribe, the Ashwinabi peoples. And we're going to be developing the rental around it, but that's going to help unlock the site for them to build the first indigenous hub in Toronto and maybe in Canada which is a really exciting development uh, for the Indigenous community, which will have an employee training center and a community garden, and it's going to be a meeting spot for them. And so we're going to do everything we can in order to make a better world and to make uh, you know our communities feel
2: comfortable and to celebrate diversity you know Gary you said some really great points i mean one of them just talking about you know <laughs> the honesty white males have we it, this is a community problem of which we are a member of and it's important for us you know three white males sitting around a table so to speak virtually uh to talk about these things right it needs to be out on the on the table and open even though sometimes it might be uncomfortable You know, leaves me to one last thought. And Gary, I'm asking this. It's a hard question, but I'm asking it because it it sounds like you've thought a lot about this. And and, I mean, your background with South Africa would give you maybe a different perspective. Right now, there's a lot of momentum with this particular issue, clearly, of course, with what's going on in the US. But, you know, it's not a short-term fix, like you said. I mean, the the initiative to have, you know, Black members or African members on your board in five years, I mean, that's a wonderful uh, initiative, but it'll take longer than five years for us to solve this problem. How do you keep the momentum going?
1: Well, it's not a one and done, right? That's the worry that I think, you know, certainly black leaders have. It's not one and done. It's not like we put up our hand and we say the right things. You got to keep at it all the time. And I fully believe you get the culture you deserve. You got to work on your culture. You got to work on your relationships every single day. And that includes diversity, right? So it's going out there and finding black talent, right? Finding indigenous talent, working hard, making sure the recruiters just don't bring us white talent. Right? So we've got to work at it. And we've got to make sure that we have a, a truly representative and diverse organization. And then we've got to go out continuously and support, let's say, black organizations that are doing great work. So, for example, we supported in the U.S. Black Girls Code and Black Boys Code in Canada. And these are organizations that are helping young black people learn about computer science and coding. Right. So they can develop careers in tech or, you know, in business and and develop the confidence to help propel and support their own communities. Right. It's not about giving handouts. It's about allowing their communities to be successful so they can rise up. So these are things so that we can all do there's there's so many different things you know we can all help out with to make sure that we get rid of the inequality right and that there's not these systemic prejudices against certain minorities which is not a great society at the end of the day everyone should we need a meritocracy that's what made you know the new world
2: great and that's got to be perpetuated Thanks for your perspective, Gary. I think it's really important that we continue to talk about this. Unfortunately, we're slowly running out of time, and so we don't want to lose the opportunity just to talk about where next, what next. I mean, what does the next five years look like? I mean, we've talked about sort of some major transformations uh, looking backwards. I mean, you you can never predict this, I guess, but do you get the sense that you're now kind of online with where you guys are going to keep going? Is Canada and US the only markets you're going to stay in? Are there other assets that you're looking for? Is, Is it technology? I mean, a lot of firms that used to be called real estate firms are becoming technology firms. Is that the future? Like, tell us just kind of what you're envisioning for Tricon going forward.
1: Well, I would, I would never say never. And again, you know, the environment changes and you have to be successful long term. You, you have to pivot when you think the environment's going to change. But from what I can see right now, I don't think we're going to do anything different in five years or even 10 years. I think the business is going to be the exact same. It's just going to be much, much bigger. Right. Because we built the infrastructure and the platform to manage many, many more homes or apartments right now between, you know, both single family and multifamily. We manage about, you know, 33,000 homes, but there's no reason we couldn't be at 50 or 100 or 200,000. Right. Because we built the platform, we built the technology to scale that. And so I just see that we're just going to put our heads down and continue to grow. I think there's going to be a tremendous runway for us to grow. And all the business we're in, whether it's single family rental, garden style multifamily and what we're doing in in Toronto, which is more of a build the core multifamily program, because in Toronto, obviously, there's very little, you know, there's been very little housing and not enough rental housing. And so I don't see those trends changing unless there's a substantial change to immigration. So I think, you know, I mean, we've evolved a lot to get to this point. But now, I mean, now that everything's working so well for us, I think the trajectory is pretty clear. And it's just to put our head down, keep on doing what we're doing, keep on refining, keep on improving our technology and our innovative culture. You know, never be complacent, as I said at the beginning, but just keep on growing and tracking more public and private capital and get our business to the next level so we become more and more efficient.
2: Well, Gary, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think we covered a ton of interesting and dynamic topics. we would like to thank First National for powering the podcast. And of course, everybody, stay tuned. Adam and I are going to digest this conversation as uh, part of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show. Again, Gary, thanks so much for your time and and, uh, interesting perspectives.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, First National. It was great
2: talking to you both. Talk soon. We want to thank our sponsor for this
0: episode, Wise Meter Solutions is Canada's leading provider of sub-metering and utility expense management services. Let us help you achieve your goals, be they a greener operation or financial performance, reflecting a $45,000 increase per suite in property value. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise is your go-to partner. Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast after show, where Aaron and I share our thoughts about the show that just went down. Aaron, I mean, might as well cut right to it. The technology aspect, super cool.
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, go,
0: go, go. You tell me your thoughts. Yeah. First. Oh, I mean, uh, I, I was I was envisioning even getting creative. It where you had you know different different formulations for what you're putting into your ninety point test. And then deploying them in the same market and see who performs better over time, so you can fine tune the exact right mix in your ninety pointer. I mean, it's uh, the mind kind of just you know runs wild. And even more interesting is comment about it's just at this point it's just strictly capital. You know, if somebody just gave them fifty billion dollars that you could then start you know getting eight thousand, twenty thousand units per quarter. You know, it's uh, it's it's mind boggling.
2: Yeah, you know, we didn't get into it. And he probably couldn't answer it. But I'm wondering what the yields are, and you know, what the yields were before they turned the algorithm on versus what their returns are today now using that machinery. And, you know, if they've made one tweak, and all of a sudden, you know, yields are up 10% or a basis point or whatever the numbers may be. But yeah, no, you know, it's funny, we always spend 10-15 minutes with the guests before we go live just to kind of digest or you know, quickly lay out the conversation that did not come up at all in our preamble, and then all of a sudden, you and I—everybody knows—we're texting each other back and forth during the show. And it's like, like, ask more questions. That's interesting. Ask more yeah. questions. So yeah, That's- for sure, it got us peaked. We could probably go to spend an entire episode just on that technology and how it works. And one of my questions, and I kind of buried it in a larger question, but he, he didn't really want to divulge next locations. But for sure, they're thinking. I don't know if they're thinking Australia or Ireland or somewhere it's got to be it's got to be applicable you know across continents right
0: oh 100% yeah i mean it's uh, it's amazing to think now that you know the regular buyers got to compete with just an algorithm spitting out offers gobbling up real estate you know it also be interesting too. you know version 1.0 when you deployed it with actual capital and you bought yourself 800 units in a quarter what did the worst three look like of that? You know, where maybe the algorithm didn't connect, and you kind of, you know, see the house. You go, oh
2: wow, the algorithm missed the mark on that one. You know, it's, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a full bulldoze or something, right? Yeah, no, no, I'm, and I'm sure that happens. I mean, that's that's got to be part of the learning curve. That would have been a good question to ask him. Get him back on here. Let's yeah, <laughs> let's try that. You know, he, he, yeah. may, he mentioned something that I had never. I mean, I, I had notionally in my brain, but I never actually heard it being termed as validation capital. And I kind of poked him on it, but he didn't really bite, you know, and talking about, you know, the uh, the effort that one of their consultant firms, I, I think it was Morgan Stanley, but I, I could be wrong, yeah. that went through and, and did this whole market assessment. And I guess it was an RFP process, probably. And I guess that makes perfect sense to have somebody like Blackstone attached to you as, a, as an investor that just validates you as a legitimate, as just legitimacy, ultimately, right? So curious... How much you balance that? Like he, he mentioned, the cost of capital, but I, Blackstone's smart. Clearly, they're charging a premium, knowing that they validate the strength of that entity that they're investing in, and all like that becomes. I mean, I don't know if you can actuarial science that formula or not. If it becomes just more of a, a gut instinct.
0: Oh yeah, the the way that Blackstone making an investment gets amplified in the marketplace versus a not very well known large pool of capital that could have stepped in on, you know, perhaps even better terms. Yeah, what's the value on having that amplified? It was reported in the media. You know, that's where I first heard about it. It wasn't from you know the guys at Tricon.
2: It was in the paper. Well I wonder like if some let's say small, not small, but like Japanese pension fund shows up and says, here's a billion dollars at yield X and Blackstone's there saying, Well here's three hundred million at the same yield, do you take the Blackstone because that validates you versus the extra seven hundred million from some Japanese pension fund that no one's ever heard of. I don't know. Like I have no idea. I don't know. Where's the number? Right, seven hundred million. That may be a little bit. Like I think probably be like take the money, idiots. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know how that works.
0: Well, and with that as well, which he alluded to in the conversation. Of course, they're largely U.S. based, and they're based out of Canada, and it's not just in real estate. Virtually any Canadian group going to operate in the states. There's always that. Just that outsider. You're from a very small country, from a population perspective, and so maybe there's even more value in that validation capital than if they were U.S. based and uh, and you know operating down there. There's you know, a lot of considerations, and and not, not just necessarily quantitative. It's all qualitative, so it's harder to really.
2: Well, yeah. On. Like, what's what, how much of a shortcoming is it to show up at a table, whatever table it may be, being the Canadian, right? and if you just immediately get pushed to the bottom of the stack or i don't i mean who knows you know he spoke so eloquently on diversity like clearly something he's very passionate about something that's so important and i i was just very impressed with just the way that he sees the significance of that issue and it clearly i mean we we've, we've talked about it before about you know sometimes these things whether it's in you know ESG environmental social governance where it gets kind of slapped into policies just so that you can say you're doing it Versus actually putting your money where your mouth is, and clearly uh, it's something that's very, very important to them.
0: Yeah, and the South African angle was you know, particularly poignant, Obviously, you know, to show how badly one group of citizens can be treated in a country, there would be you'd be hard pressed to find a worse example than that. You know, the point where your family moves as a result of that—it's uh, that really kind of you know puts in a perspective that yeah. you know, from the top down, Tricon probably has a good handle on trying to balance that within their company.
2: Yeah, no, I thought it was, that was a highlight for me of that interview.
0: The one other thing that you referenced a couple of times in the the interview was getting through the Great Recession. I mean, if you talk to a lot of the operators that are solely Canadian-based and aren't, you know, into residential, 2008-9, difficult for sure, but, you know, quick bounce back and, you know, the drop evaluations are not too significant, but they were in single-family residential in the U.S. in 2008-9. That's, that's right into the hottest part of the fire. That's, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, your ability to survive, that does speak uh, volumes
2: to have that well, kind he, of. Exposure. He called it an existential risk and that it was real. Like it was, I, I'm sure, I mean, I, I mean, we didn't ever get into the numbers, but I'm sure it was very significantly. You know, I'm sure there were days and days where they nobody was sleeping. Him or his dad or his partners or whoever. Right? There was a lot of, I'm sure, a lot of sleepless nights. You know, it was really interesting to hear the story because, you know, again, we we get to interview a whole bunch of these leaders and these companies that 30 years been doing the same things, tried, true, and tested, and you just stick to your niche. But they've had to pivot multiple times, like they really have, as a result of just kind of you know crises that they found themselves in. And a total true testament to them to be able to continue to be successful on attract track capital like Blackstone like it's really it's impressive that they've been able to do that and continue to be as successful as they have been anyway I think that's a wrap thanks to First National again for powering the podcast of course thanks to Gary for coming on and uh, Adam Till next time man can't wait quick reminder to register for the 2020 Real Estate Forum which takes place on the 2nd and 3rd of December by going to realestateforums.com Real Estate Forum Club members remember to enter your membership number to receive your 20% discount Adam and I are really look forward to connecting with you and many others this year at the Forum.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.